And so I want to uh, look with you at a passage this morning that will might seem random, uh, just out of the blue, um, but I think it's going to provide a a biblical perspective on what in the world is going on in our country, and uh, and also at the same time prepare us for. The next section in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 14 is where we're headed next, and Lord willing, we're going to dive into that next Sunday, and uh, I think this passage will serve as a good foundation for that and kind of get our minds uh, going in the right direction and our hearts prepared uh, for what we're going to learn together in Romans 14, but I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 3 this morning. James chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Father, we're grateful for just the variety of passages that we find in your word. There's always something for whatever occasion might be before us. And it seems to me that this is an appropriate text for today as we respond in our minds and our hearts and even in our actions and our words to the craziness that's going on all around us in our country with this uh, pandemic and with uh, the election bearing down upon us and the debate starting this week and all the different decisions that have been made that have uh, caused um, all sorts of ruckus in our country uh, just pray, I pray that uh, your word would cut through all of this, all of the mayhem, and just help us to see clearly uh, what is going on and who you would have us to be in the midst of all this. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the United States is anything but united right now. We are experiencing one of the most turbulent and tumultuous times in the history of our nation, The grand jury's decision to not charge any police officers in the shooting death of Breonna Taylor has enraged many and sparked a a new wave of riots in cities around the country. The president's nomination of Amy Conant Barrett yesterday to fill the vacancy in the Supreme Court has infuriated many and initiated the next political battle in our nation's capital. And these are just two of the latest events which have escalated the upheaval and and unrest and intensified the hate and hostility in our society and widened the division in America. And while citizens are fighting with each other and rioting 
against the police whose job it is to maintain law and order and to keep anarchy at bay. Our representatives, our elected officials in Washington are busy fussing at each other and fomenting against each other. And for you gamers out there or who live in a house with gamers, this has become a real-life version of Nintendo's widely popular Super Smash Brothers Melee. Those of you that have ever played that or watched your kids play that, you know what I'm talking about. The characters are going around fighting with each other and trying to knock back their opponents by any means possible. And it's just, it is just, just that. It's just melee. It's mayhem. And when I used to watch my kids play this, I was like, I, I couldn't even figure out what was going on. And it was just so confusing. And who was that? And where did they come from? And where did they just go? And how did you get that hammer? And where did you, right? It was just chaos and confusion for me. Well, into the melee steps the Apostle John, excuse me, the Apostle James. And he cries out above all the ruckus and he provides insight into why there's so much conflict and confusion in our country right now. Have you asked yourself that question? What is at the root of all the discord and all the disorder in America? What is causing all this? Well, underneath all the wars on our streets and behind all the wars in our legislature, there is a spiritual war going on between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God are exact opposites. They are diametrically opposed to each other. And in this passage, James gave a side-by-side comparison of these two types or two kinds of wisdom. And he shows the the characteristics and the causes and the consequences of these two types of wisdom. And understanding what James said here will enable us to be agents of peace amidst this present pandemonium in our nation. In other words, rather than just being one more troublemaker out there, James showed us how we can be a peacemaker. Now, the context here of this passage, and again, we're just parachuting down here in the middle of this letter, and so we need to step back a second and understand why James wrote this letter to begin with, and it was specifically to challenge his readers to examine their faith in Jesus Christ to make sure it was real. And so... He, throughout this letter, has been describing the characteristics of genuine saving faith. In other words, how do you know if you're truly saved? It's not enough to say you're saved, to say you have faith, to say you believe in God, um, but how do you know if it's true? Well, he gives a list, if you will, of true genuine saving faith. A person who's truly saved perseveres through trials, that's James chapter 1, Along with that, they overcome temptation. Uh, A person who's truly saved responds to the word of God with obedience. They're not merely hearers of the word who delude themselves, but they actually do what it says. They live pure and holy lives. A person who's truly saved does not show favoritism. They do good works. They control their tongue. And that brings us into chapter 3 here, where James described his next characteristic or the next characteristic of genuine saving faith. And he says this, a person who's truly saved behaves wisely. 
or they exercise godly wisdom. And so James began his discussion on worldly wisdom and godly wisdom with a rhetorical question, which is intended to get us to examine ourselves to see which kind of wisdom characterizes our lives. Look at verse 13. He says, who among you is wise and understanding? That word wise is the Greek word sophos, where we get philosophy from. Uh, It really describes a lover of wisdom. And in fact, this word here, it was a technical term for rabbi or teacher. And if you remember back in verse 1 of chapter 3, James said this, let not many of you become teachers, sophos, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Apparently there were some uh, in the church there or among the believers there that were scattered all over Asia being persecuted. Uh, There were some who were presumptuously pursuing the position of teacher and they considered themselves smarter than everyone else and their prideful self-promotion led to angry arguments among the believers to whom James was writing. And so he confronted their arrogant attitude later in this text, as we'll see, But notice he says, who among you is wise and understanding? Understanding is the idea of someone who is an expert or a professional or a specialist. Someone who has an expertise in a certain field, like a heart surgeon or an optometrist or an orthodontist. From a spiritual perspective, what James is asking here is, do any of you have the wisdom and understanding to live your life in such a way that you don't just know the Bible, you don't just know the truth of Scripture, but that you live it out. You practically apply it in your everyday life. There's a big difference between knowing a verse, for example, some verse that you have memorized, and then actually doing it, living it out, putting it into practice. I think all of us have verses memorized, the things that we know that we struggle with applying. And so he's asking the question, hey, who is out there who not just knows the truth, but who practices the truth? Notice what he says, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. This is a command. This is in the imperative here. And so James is commanding those who are claiming to be wise and have understanding to put up or shut up. In other words, actions speak louder than words. Don't just tell me you're wise, show me you're wise. And if you're truly a wise person, then you'll prove it by the way you live your life. He says, show me by good behavior, the manner of your life, your lifestyle. And notice the main characteristic which shows a person is exercising godly wisdom is what? What did he say there? In the what? Gentleness of wisdom. Gentleness is the exact opposite of the arrogant, self-assertive attitude being demonstrated by some of these people that James was writing to. Someone described this word gentleness 
as the humble and gentle attitude which expresses itself in patient submissiveness to offense, free from malice and desire for revenge. This word was also used to describe a brilliant teacher who could debate others without getting angry. Like Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient with wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Perhaps the best way to to translate this word here, gentleness, is meekness. Meekness. And apparently, like many of us, there were those that James was addressing who viewed meekness as weakness. Kind of like a spineless jellyfish floating around just trying to avoid any conflict. Just kind of staying out of everybody else's way. Well, this word was used to describe a a powerful, high-spirited horse that had been broken and had been brought under control. And so uh, the definition, definition I've always loved of meekness is simply strength under control. And obviously, Jesus was the ultimate example of that. He was the omnipotent, all-powerful God of the universe in human flesh. And he laid aside his independent use of that power. And he chose not to use that power. He was, his strength, his, his omnipotence was under control. In fact, he described himself in this way. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Some of you have recently read or are in the process of reading a brand new book by, uh, I'm blanking on the, his last name, but uh, it's called Gentle and Lowly. And it's a great book about the person of Christ, who Christ was. We all know what Christ did. But do we really know who Christ is? And uh, so this um, author uses this verse and says, you know, this is the only place in the scripture where Jesus described himself. And he was the gentle and lowly one. Well, meekness is not a quality that comes naturally to any of us. And so that's why it's so important for us to spend time with the one who demonstrated the most, Jesus, right? And and, and as we spend time with him, we become more like him. And I like this uh, expression, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's like like they would oftentimes take a young ox that had not, not been broken and they would yoke it together with an older, more experienced ox to learn its proper place and to listen to the master's directions. And so we need to yoke ourselves up with Jesus and learn how to be meek like this, to be gentle and humble in heart. So James establishes here, right off the bat, that, that wisdom is demonstrated by how we behave. And then he went on to elaborate on the specific behavior qualities of worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. 
And so in the verses that follow now, verses 14 through 18, James explained three specific attributes, if you will, about both kinds of wisdom. He talks about their characteristics, what it looks like, its causes, where it comes from, and its consequences, what it produces, what is the result of these two types of wisdom. He addresses, first of all, worldly wisdom in verse 14, and he starts by talking about the characteristics of worldly wisdom. Notice what he says, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, in other words, you're not gentle and lowly of heart like Jesus was, but you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. That expression, bitter jealousy, literally means to boil or to bubble up. So this is a a fierce desire to promote yourself and your opinion above everyone else's. It's it's an inner frenzy that's the result of being threatened by the thought of losing what you possess. And and, and so you're always trying to fight to stay on top, to be first, to be most important. It's, It's like a teacher fighting for a following. In fact, Pilate knew exactly why the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. It says in Mark 15, 10, Pilate knew they had delivered Jesus to him because of envy. They saw the crowds that used to follow them now follow Jesus, and they were more in tune with what Jesus had to say than what the religious leaders had to say, and they didn't want to lose their following, so they had Jesus killed. We see that going on in our country right now. Don't want to lose something, and so you maybe not literally kill someone, but you assassinate their character. You destroy their reputation. You do whatever it takes to to get people not to follow them. And then that phrase, selfish ambition, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, selfish ambition originally meant spinning for hire. In other words, you you hired yourself out to make money. And so it came to refer to someone who only pursued their own interests, that they would just trample other people to get what they wanted. They would seek to exalt themselves through unethical, divisive means. They're they're egotistical. They have a a competitive spirit that drives them to to scratch and kick and and, and claw and push their way to the top to be the best, to be the most popular, to be the center of attention. And this attitude leads to antagonism and, and bitter rivalry that we're seeing in our country right now. In Philippians chapter one, Verse 15, Paul said, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill, and the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. And then he goes on to provide the correction for that disunity He said, do nothing, this is Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So 
So Paul's point, James' point, is the same, that selfish ambition causes all kinds of strife and disunity. In fact, the word there for selfish ambition was used to describe a politician going around getting votes who, who, who resorted to boasting about themselves and putting down their opponent. Does that sound familiar? It's the party spirit. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Calvinist. I'm an Armenian. It's that battling it, duking it out mindset. Well, James says, don't be arrogant. Do not be arrogant. Stop boasting. Stop bragging that you're better than everyone else. Stop gloating over the fact that you triumphed over someone else. You won the debate. You, you, you won the election. You won the game. Paul told us, told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29, that we're not to boast in ourselves, but if we're to boast, we're only to boast in who? In the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And what James is getting at here is if when we, when we don't boast in the Lord, but we boast in ourselves, we lie against the truth. You say, well, what truth? Well, back in chapter 1, James used the same word, Verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So that's a reference to the word of God. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 19, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he turns the sinner from the air of his way, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So the word truth here in the overall context of James is the, is the Bible, the word of God, the scriptures, you might even say the gospel itself. One commentator made this strong statement, and I quote, if a person professes saving faith in Jesus Christ and claims to have wisdom from God, but has a heart that is proud, arrogant, and self-centered, his claims to salvation are false. In other words, if pride and arrogance and selfish ambition and jealousy characterize your life, I mean, that is just the pattern of your life, that is just how you are, how you talk, how you think, how you act, then you can say all you want that you're a Christian, but it's just not true. You're deceived. And that was James' point. Because a life dominated by jealousy and selfishness is not an accurate reflection of someone who's received the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God is living in and through them. So James was saying, listen, you, you, you claim to be wise, but you're deceiving yourself. You're living your life according to false wisdom, which is an imitation of the real thing. It's, you think you're smart, but you're not. And so those are the characteristics of worldly wisdom. Now, where does this worldly wisdom come from? What is the cause? Well, obviously, it doesn't come from God. God has nothing to do with this kind of wisdom. James exposed the source of this kind of wisdom by listing three words in climactic order 
that correspond to the three great enemies of our soul as Christians, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Notice he says here in verse 15, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above. This is not from God, but is earthly. It's worldly. It has, has to do with the things of this earth. Uh, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul talks about this. For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on earthly things. So he says it's earthly. Secondly, it's natural as opposed to supernatural. It's it's unspiritual, so it pertains to the natural realm. It's, it's unrelated to the, to the Spirit of God. There's nothing spiritual about it. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. In other words, the, 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 the unsaved person who doesn't have the Spirit of God in them does not accept or receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. And so, in other words, an unsaved person is on a totally different wavelength than God. All they've got is an AM receiver and God's broadcasting FM and they they just, they can go up and down the dial all they want and it's just not coming through. It's not making any sense. All it is is static. God's word sounds like static. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you may not be saved and the evidence of that is that all you're hearing right now is that's how the preaching of God's word sounds to you. It's just staticky because you don't have the spirit of God in you. And so you don't receive the things of the spirit. Well, if that wasn't bad enough, it's not only earthly, natural, but notice he says it's demonic. That this wisdom is inspired by Demons who are Satan's evil minions who, who, whose goal it is to influence the world for Satan. I was talking to one of our elders this morning and he said as he looks at, out at what's going on in our country right now, he just keeps going back to Ephesians chapter two, talking about how we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That it's Satan is, has been given authority in our world by God himself. It's a delegated authority. It's a limited authority. But it is authority nevertheless that the world lies in the lap of the evil one. And Ephesians 6 talks about our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's talking about Satan and all of his regiments of demons. And uh, Paul warned Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Verse one, the spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 
So the ultimate source of worldly wisdom is the devil himself. So much of what we are hearing spewed through the airways these days and the actions that we see being played out all around us, it's, 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 it's straight from the pit of hell. Well, Paul goes on to talk about the consequences of this type of wisdom. What is the result of this kind of wisdom? Notice verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, which, by the way, are the very two things he mentioned in verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, right? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is what? Disorder. And every evil thing. So he's telling us here why we need to avoid this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and this arrogance because these attitudes have a disastrous, destructive effect. Worldly wisdom results in disorder. And James has already used the same word two times back in chapter 1, verse 8, where he says that if you pray for wisdom... Uh, don't be like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind, for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, here's our word, unstable in all his ways. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, as he described the tongue, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a, here's our word, restless evil and full of deadly poison. So unstable or unsettled would be another word for that. And restlessness, I mean, isn't that a perfect description of what's happening in our country right now, that there's this, there's this unsettled restlessness? There's an instability, there's disharmony, there's disunity, there's division, there's confusion, there's chaos. I found it interesting that in political situations, this word was used to describe a state of anarchy. That word disorder. It leads to anarchy. And that's exactly what happens when, when everybody around runs around selfishly demanding their own rights and jealously trying to get ahead of everyone else. It doesn't draw people closer together. It, it drives them apart. And instead of producing peace, it produces strife. In fact, in the next chapter here, James 4, we're familiar with the, the first three verses there. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Why are you guys fighting so much? Why are you arguing all the time? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So we see the devastating consequences of our selfish, jealous motives and words and actions all over the place. They, they create havoc in every area of our lives. This, this, this doesn't just apply to our country, our nation right now. This might apply to your home. 
This may apply to your marriage. This may apply to your family, that there's just all sorts of ruckus going on in your marriage, all sorts of ruckus going on in your family. Why? Why is that? Well, apparently someone or everyone is living according to worldly wisdom. They're not applying godly wisdom. I'll never forget how James' teaching here in this passage was vividly, unforgettably played out before my very eyes in the first church I pastored when I came to Texas. And for the entire first year, I ministered there in an atmosphere that could be best described as unsettled restlessness. There was just this underlying sense of tension and friction. And Paul's words to the Corinthian church, I think, applied to that church at the time, 2 Corinthians 12, 20, for I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, that perhaps there may be strife, jealousy, anger, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. And in the sweet providence of God, we were studying the book of James. And in hindsight, maybe that's part of the reason why we were in the mess we were in, because <laughs> we were looking at the book of James, which is a hard-hitting, hit-you-between-the-eyes kind of book. And uh, it's not easy to take sometimes. But before the, the rumbling volcano finally blew its top, I mean, we're talking, finally came to a head. Guess what passage I preached the Sunday before? this passage. I thought, are you kidding me? This is so providential. It's so ironic, but it provided me with invaluable insight as to why there was so much strife and disunity in the church. It was like a description of the church at the time. And whenever a church experiences disunity and division, and I would add this, whenever a marriage experiences disunity division, whenever a, a family experiences disunity division, it's evidence that someone or some group is operating according to worldly wisdom, which means they're being controlled and influenced by Satan to act jealously and selfishly. William Barclay, who is a classic commentator, he said this, quote, there is a kind of person who is undoubtedly clever with acute brain and skillful tongue, but his effect nevertheless in any committee, in any church, in any group is to cause trouble and to disturb personal relationships. You ever known anybody like that? Man, they're just, they are smart. They are clever. They are um, eloquent. They're sharp. But it seems that whatever committee they're a part of and any group they're a part of, they, they just stir up trouble. And they disturb personal relationships. You might be living with someone like that. You might be married to somebody like that. You may be that person. And the Bible warns us 
that ungodly troublemakers all, all around us. And they'll try to influence, infiltrate and influence the church in particular. Jude 18, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Romans 16, 17, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. In other words, don't have any, anything to do with a troublemaker. Don't befriend them because you'll end up becoming one yourself. He who walks with the wise will be wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. That's Proverbs. This is also in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 19. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Okay, if you were falling asleep, dozing off, that should wake you up right now because we're about to read the things that God hates, the things that are an abomination. And he just lists six of them. Like, that's it? There's only six things to hack God off? Now, there's more, but this is, what the, this is what Solomon wrote. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devised wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and here it is, the last one, save the best for last, and one who spreads strife among brothers. It is a serious sin to be a troublemaker in the family of God. It's a serious sin to be a troublemaker in your marriage, to be a troublemaker in your home, in your family, at your workplace, in your community. God hates those who cause strife. And when a person continually goes around spreading strife in, in their marriage and in, in, in their family, in, in their church, in their work, they're demonstrating that they don't have a true saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And what's more, they are tools of Satan who are being used by him to hinder the work of God. Remember what Jesus said to Peter not that he wasn't truly saved, he wasn't a true follower of Christ, but he got mixed up there for a second when he found out that Jesus was going to die and he said, I ain't going to let that happen. As long as I'm alive, that ain't going to happen. And what did, what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Peter. No, he said, get behind me, Satan. He knew where that was coming from, that Satan was wanting to, to keep Jesus from dying on the cross. He said, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's interest. That's the bottom line. That, that most people are just thinking about themselves. They just have their interests in mind. They don't have God's interests in mind. Notice he says here, but the wisdom, uh, excuse me, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. I mean, worldly wisdom just, just opens up a Pandora's box uh, 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 filled with all sorts of wicked things, gossip and slander and immorality and murder and you name it. And so whenever and wherever worldly wisdom is in control, it creates discord, it creates disorder. And you say, okay, that's, 
I, I get it. I see it. So what's the remedy? The remedy is godly wisdom. Let's look at this quickly as we wrap up. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is, stop there. James starts with the cause of this wisdom. Where does this wisdom come from? It comes straight from God himself. James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask what? Who? Ask your partner, ask your friend, ask your discipler, ask your pastor. No, don't ask me. Ask God. If you lack wisdom, it says ask God. He's the source of wisdom. Proverbs 2, 6, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. You might want to write down Job 28. Job 28, just a, a really powerful chapter about where does wisdom come from? It doesn't come from this earth. It comes from above. It comes from heaven. And so we see this wisdom comes from God. And notice the characteristics of this world, uh, excuse me, this godly wisdom. And, and, and notice that that um, James listed seven character traits of a person who is living according to godly wisdom. He says the wisdom from above is first, what? Pure, clean, uncontaminated, free from defilement of any kind. Maybe the idea here would be sincere, uh, sincere okay? Which, by the way, this is a basic requirement for, for having a relationship with God is that you must be pure. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. 1 John 3, 3, talking about looking forward to the return of Christ, that everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So, so the first and, and, and most important here, a person with godly wisdom lives their life with pure morals, and I would even add pure motives. So you're pure. Number two, you're peaceable. In other words, you're not quarrelsome. You're not contentious. You're someone who loves and promotes peace. You do everything you can do, you can to avoid conflict and strife. You're willing to endure all sorts of insults and false accusations without fighting back or seeking to justify yourself or defend yourself. You never seek revenge. Romans 12, we just learned about that. Again, James wasn't advocating peace at any price here, which some people are like that. They'll do anything to keep the peace. They'll avoid certain doctrines. They'll avoid having difficult conversations that could be divisive or they compromise the truth. They sweep sin under the rug and act like it's not there. No. According to James, purity comes before peace. So peace starts with purity. So if a church is pure, if you're pure, then there's going to be peace. In other words, a, a peaceable person doesn't deliberately, purposely cause strife, but neither do they compromise the truth to keep the peace. Notice he says the wisdom of Rob is gentle. Next word there. In other words, you're fair, you're moderate, you're forbearing, you're patient, you're courteous. You, you don't demand your own rights. You're considerate of and, and sensitive to other people's concerns and, and, and struggles. Somebody said that this word gentle really could be described as sweet reasonableness. 
You're able to submit to false treatment without getting bitter or fighting back. When you're slandered, you humbly defend your attacker. Perhaps listing the pressures they're under and the need to be tolerant of them. Someone said it this way, the complete absence, this is what, what this word gentle means, is the complete absence of harsh criticism of others, the quality that is always ready to make allowances, always inventive in finding excuses, not for yourself, but for others. Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and what? Gentleness. He goes on. He says, uh, worldly, or excuse me, godly wisdom evidences itself by being reasonable. Being reasonable. In other words, you're, you're willing to yield. You're open to reason. You're You're open to persuasion. You're not stubborn. You're not inflexible or intolerant. You're not overly dogmatic. You're approachable, you're agreeable, you're teachable, you're willing to consider another point of view. The idea here is that you that there's a readiness to admit that you might be wrong and that you could change your mind or your opinion if someone has a better idea. It's an eagerness to cooperate when a better way is shown. It, it doesn't insist on getting your way or having to have it your way all the time. You're not threatened or frustrated by someone who has a different view or perspective than you. You don't, you don't see them as your enemies. You accept them rather than, than judge them. We're going to see that in Romans 14 next week. He goes on, full of mercy and good fruits. In other words, you're merciful. You're compassionate. You, you have a, a compassionate attitude towards others who are suffering, even if it's their own fault. It's not a, well, you knew better, or you had it coming to you. You deserved it. No, the the essence of mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. It's showing kindness to those who don't deserve you to be kind to them. He says, full of mercy and good fruits. Again, mercy results in providing practical help. When you... When you see somebody in a, in a bad situation and you have pity on them, you don't just feel sorry about it, you do something about it. If you see something hurting, you, you go talk to them. You, you give them a call, you write them a note, you bring them some food, you write a check. It's, it's compassion and action is what's happening here. And then notice he says unwavering. This wisdom from above is unwavering. In other words, it's the opposite of being that unsettled, unstable person, you're stable, you're dependable, you're consistent, you're confident, you're decisive, you don't vacillate back and forth, you don't capitulate when under pressure, you're uncompromising. You hold to your convictions regardless of the circumstances. You are, as J.I. Packer described a Puritan as being one who is immovable in your times. Love that description. A man, a person who is immovable in all times. And then lastly, notice he says, without without hypocrisy. In other words, you're sincere, you're genuine. And here we have the word hypocritos. 
which literally meant a wearer of a mask. And I've said this before, but the way they would use this term back then is a, of an actor who would play a different part in the same play. And he'd, he'd come on stage with a mask and he'd play one character. He'd run off stage and he'd get another mask and he'd come on and play another character. So James' point here is a person with godly wisdom doesn't wear masks. They're not two-faced. They don't pretend to be someone that they're really not. What you see is what you get with that person. They have nothing to hide. They're honest. They're transparent. They speak the truth in love. I read somewhere that someone described Abraham Lincoln, who is obviously one of history's most renowned peacemakers, right? He held our country together through the Civil War and that threatened to divide and destroy our country before we really even got started. And he embodied all these characteristics of godly wisdom, but someone described him as velvet steel. That's a great description, isn't it? Velvet steel. And I think that's just a good overall description of a person whose life is controlled by godly wisdom. Here we have been given by James a portrait of a person who is truly wise in contrast to a person who thinks they're wise and they're really not. They're Mr. Worldly Wise from Pilgrim's Progress. What are the consequences of this godly wisdom? Well, he says in verse 18, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, if you're like me, I read that and I go, what does that mean? I like the way the NIV translated it, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. It's a little simpler, a little easier to understand. What is this fruit which is righteousness? Again, righteousness is the end product. This is the crop. This is what Paul prayed for, for the believers in Philippi, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In other words, it just simply means right living. You, you do the right thing. You say the right thing. You think the right thing. You respond to others in the right way. You interact with people and relate to people in the right way. And so he says, the seed whose fruit is righteous is sown in peace by those who make peace. In order to have a good harvest of anything, it's necessary to have the proper environment. And so certain plants require certain kinds of soil or, or, or the right kind of climate. If you, if you plant seeds in the wrong kind of soil, in the wrong climate, nothing's going to grow. But when you plant seeds in the right soil, in the right climate, they're going to grow to produce an abundant crop. And so likewise, in order for righteousness to grow in your life and in the life of those around you, it needs the right kind of environment. It cannot grow in an environment of disorder and disharmony. Someone said it this way. Well, Barclay, again, said this. A group where there is bitterness and strife is a barren soil. Some of you may be wondering why nothing's going right in your marriage. Nothing's going right in your family. Nothing seems to be going right in our country. Why? Well, because there's bitterness. There's strife that needs to be resolved. And until you resolve that bitterness and strife, man, there's nothing good's going to grow. You just got a bunch of dead stuff in your marriage, in your family. 
When seeds of righteousness are planted in peaceful soil and in a peaceful climate, they grow up to produce an abundant crop of righteousness. In other words, more. In other words, doing the right things, saying the right things. This is trying to get very practical. What is this talking about? Saying the right things to your spouse, doing the right things to your brother or sister, interacting in the right ways with your coworkers, fellow citizens. That's a peaceful soil. That's a peaceful climate. And so what's going to happen? Good things are going to come from that. And so that's why it's so hard that we work, or so important, that we work hard at cultivating a peaceful atmosphere in our marriages and in our homes and in our church and in our country, right? So righteousness will grow and flourish in our lives and the lives of those around us. You say, how do we do that? How do I cultivate that peaceful atmosphere in my marriage, in my home, in, in, in our country? Well, it's by exhibiting the qualities in verse 17. Be pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And when everyone in your marriage and in your family and at your workplace and in our country lives this way, the result will be peace. You say, what's the connection to Romans 14? Well, in 15, as we're going to see, Romans 14 and 15 go together. Let me read for you Romans 15, verse 5. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be the same mind with one another. We're talking about unity here. According to Christ Jesus, with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really the climax of what Paul was getting at in Romans 14 and 15 is, hey, you, you can agree to disagree on gray areas. Certain things you have strong convictions about, opinions about, hey, somebody else has a different conviction, a different, it's okay. You can still have the same mind, you can live in one accord with one voice and glorify the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's the key in that little pronoun, our. Is Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior. Because wisdom from above comes from God through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. And in Colossians 2.3, Paul said that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So when a person believes that Jesus Christ died for him, died for them, on the cross, and they receive him as their personal Lord and Savior, they receive the wisdom of God. When you receive Jesus, you receive God's wisdom from above. And that wisdom naturally begins to manifest itself in the way that you live your life, primarily by making you like Jesus, where you're gentle and lowly and meek in your attitude, and you don't boast about anything but Christ alone. And that's what it looks like when a person forsakes worldly wisdom and embraces godly wisdom. Instead of being a troublemaker, they go from being a troublemaker to to a peacemaker. None of us can be peacemakers unless we are at peace with God 
through his son, Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus? Have you repented of your sin? Have you placed your faith in Christ alone for your salvation? None of this is possible until that happens. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this passage. It seems to just be a um, very clear commentary on what we're seeing um, going on in our country right now and perhaps what we see going on in our marriages and our families and at our, at our, in our workplaces right now. And I pray that you would help us not just to be hearers of your word, but that we would put this message into practice with the help of your spirit. Lord, we know that without Christ in us, uh, we cannot be like him. And so I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that needs to be saved, that you would accomplish that work for your glory and that they would know the joy of uh, receiving Christ and along with that, receiving the wisdom that you promised to give us when we repent and, and follow Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.